Hey, hello, family. Grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you are a guest or a curious skeptic with us today, we're really glad that you're here. We want to welcome you to Crossway Church, and our hope is that God uh, speaks to you and blesses you today. If you would, grab your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 43. Genesis 43 is where we're going to be today. And as you're turning there, I'll tell you something that happened to me um, recently. Uh, my passport's getting ready to expire. And so what I did was, uh, about a week or two ago, I went online and I looked up, like, where are the passport centers and, you know, are they open? What do I do kind of thing? Um, just so this thing didn't sneak up on me. They had a notice on their website saying that they're, they're currently open for life and death situations only. That's what it said. And everything else, you just do it by mail. And they didn't really define what a life and death situation was, except they did say, uh, if you need your passport in your hand within 72 hours, that would constitute life and death situation. Um, in the passage that we're going to read today, we have a genuine life and death situation. Uh, because in this story, the whole world, if you remember, is in the brutal grip of a seven-year famine. They're only a year and a half in, and the, dry, the ground's dried up, and there is no food, and people are dying. And they've got like five plus more years to go. So with that in mind, a little context, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy, your, buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, it is, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions, could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back to you, back your older brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took the present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin, they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. 
this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we pray for these fires, okay? Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I just want to ask, we want to ask together that you would calm these fires, that we're, I'm asking God that you bring rain, that you bring rain today, you bring it tonight, sometime soon, and you let it rain all over our area and show us mercy. Do not forget the land. We thank you that you hear our prayers and you answer us. And God, as we turn to your word, we confess to you, O Father, we need your word. We need to be changed. So, Almighty God, would you speak to the very core of our being? Would you change what we want the most so that we would want you the most? Amen. Uh, have you ever been in a in like a real life and death situation before? Like a situation where someone's life, maybe even was your own uh, life, was on the line and hang, hung in the balance? Because if you have, then uh, what we understand in a situation like this, our options are very limited, right? Maybe just be two options in a situation like this. Two options that we must choose, and we don't like either option. And yet we must choose. In fact, to not choose is in and of itself a choice in a life and death situation. Are you tracking with me? And so I want to set this story up that we just read just a little bit. Uh, that's kind of the feeling behind it. But what we have is, if you remember, we have, uh, we have all the brothers. We have the sons of Jacob, which they're going to be the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. And they've returned with home with food from Egypt. And they've told their dad, Jacob, this message that the, that, that man <laughs> down in Egypt, who is the ruler over Egypt, has kept their brother Simeon. He's kept them in prison until they bring back Benjamin to see him. And then he'll be glad to give him more food. And Jacob hates this news. It absolutely upsets him. He doesn't want to talk any more about it. And so time passes, and they uh, use the grain, they eat their food, and nobody goes back to Egypt for a while, and nobody goes and gets more food, and nobody brings up the subject again until now. The famine's grown worse, which means that there's no food and people are dying of hunger all around them. So it's getting grim. The sand is going through the hourglass. Are you with me? And there's coming a point where they're like not going to be able to like ignore this situation for much longer. Jacob's family has eaten up all the food that they had. So Jacob just casually suggests that his sons go down and just get a little more food from Egypt. Canaan? All the way down to Egypt, right? Like he's asking them to go down the street to the grocery store and pick up some bread and milk, right? It's almost like Jacob has either totally forgotten what his sons have told him, or he just doesn't want to think about how bad the situation is anymore. Can you relate to that? Don't we get that way? It's called living in denial. The fact is that these sons, they, they can't just go grab food. Why? Because all the food's in Egypt. That's the only place that's got food. Got food. Jacob is in a, a real life and death situation, and he, can no, not, he cannot ignore that fact 
any longer. He's being, it's being pushed in front of his face at this point. Unless he acts, not only will he die, but so will Benjamin, whom he loves, and, and all of his sons and their wives and his grandchildren. And that's like, this is a big threat to the promise of God, the covenant of God. So what are his options? Well, he's got two. He's, if you boil it all down, he's got two options. Option one, he can keep possession of Benjamin, and he gets a few more days with him, and then they eventually all die together. That's option one. Option two, he gives up Benjamin into the hands of his other son, Judah, and they go get food, and they live. At this point, life and death literally hangs in the balance. Brothers and sisters, much like Jacob, you and I live in a life and death situation. If you're born, you're born into a life and death situation. You understand what I'm saying? It's a situation we can't ignore forever. Like, in other words, at some point, the food runs out that we're rationing. At some point, the food runs out. And we will have to face the consequences of a life of dysfunction, both that we're born into and that we have participated in. And so we have to face it, and it's better to face it now than later. We must choose a course of action. We must say, like, how, how are we going to be saved? And this passage, Genesis 43, this passage is really about telling us how to live and not die. Did you hear that phrase? This passage is about how we live and not die. It's a, it's a good news passage. And what we're going to find here in Genesis 43 is that there's actually really, if you boil it all down, there's really only two strategies to save our life and the life of our loved ones, right? We can keep tight possession of our life or we can give possession to another. That's really it. And so we're going to talk about each of those this afternoon. Option one, first strategy of living. We can try to save our life by keeping tight possession of it. We can try to save our life by keeping tight possession, tight grip on our life. Let's go to the text. It's right here. Verse 4 through 6, we'll read. It says, if you, this is Judah. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? So Judah recognizes the situation that the family is in, and he speaks very boldly to his father. This is very out of the ordinary of the custom of that day. He's challenging his dad. And Judah lays out the options before his dad, and there's really only two options for him to choose from. He says, basically this, Dad, you can take the risk of sending Benjamin with me, and we will go and get food from that powerful man in Egypt, or you can keep Benjamin here, and we will not get food. And then you and me and Benjamin and our entire family dies together. There are no other options, and the clock is ticking. That's basically what he says to his dad. And so it's really clear that Jacob loves Benjamin than any other son. Are you seeing how this is the exact situation that, that Joseph was in in chapter 37? This is his favorite. 
This is the other son born from Rachel who was his favorite wife, remember? He absolutely adores Benjamin to an unhealthy level. Jacob has still got this favoritism problem, this partiality problem in his family. Jacob said earlier that if anything bad happened to his son, it would literally kill him with grief. He would cry and never stop till he died. He was not going to eat food. He's not going to sleep. He's going to cry till he dies. So Father Jacob does not know how to live if Benjamin is not alive and personally with him. If his son doesn't like him and he's not with him, he didn't know how to go on. This is an unhealthy love for your children, by the way. I feel like I have to say that. Like, I shouldn't have to say that, but like, that's an unhealthy love, unhealthy devotion to your children, okay? And, and I think there's actually a warning embedded in here for parents about our life revolving around our children. We'll say that for another message, though. What I do want to highlight today, though, is that Jacob cannot live apart from his son, Benjamin, that that is the same thing as him saying that Benjamin is his whole life. I want you to see how, like, that's a parallel. In fact, the brothers say that. They say as much in the next chapter to Joseph in chapter 44. They're before Joseph. They say, therefore, as soon as I come, to your, as soon as I come back to my, your servant, my father, and the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, then as his, li- his life is bound up in the boy's life. His life is bound up in the boy's life. Whatever ha- if, if it goes well for Benjamin, then dad's real happy. And if it doesn't go well with Benjamin, then dad is just crushed. So as it goes for the son, it goes for the father. Like he is united, he has bound himself, his life up, to that child's life so much. You understand? That's what they're saying. That is how precious Benjamin is to Father Jacob. He is Jacob's life. He is his life. Like the distinctions are like completely blurred. That is why Jacob is so reluctant to send him away, to send him with his other brother. And by the way, Jacob, to be fair, Jacob probably knows what happened the last time he sent his youngest son that he loved with those brothers. That's why he says, sure, send money and send almonds and send spices and send gifts and send all my other sons. I'm good with that, but not Benjamin. I can't part with Benjamin. I will not let go of him. He must stay in my house. He must stay in my possession or I will die. And he's afraid of dying. So follow me here. Track with me for a second because there's a theological significance going on here. The most precious thing to Jacob is his life, right? Which is bound up in Benjamin. Jacob's strategy here is to save his life, life how? By keeping tight possession or control of Benjamin. He cannot trust anybody else with something so precious and so valuable to him. He's going to be his dad. He'll take care of him. I'm not going to trust anybody else with him because he's my life. But what we find in the passage is that if he tries to protect the very thing that is so precious to him, then his life and his son's life and all of his family, they die as a consequence of that strategy. So he's on the horns of a dilemma here. In other words, if in trying to save his life by keeping a tight possession of it, 
Jacob will actually lose his life in the end. If we're being honest, brothers and sisters, and I hope we can be, this is the temptation that we all face, including me. The most precious thing in the world to us is what? Our life. Our life. I mean, we can part with money so long as we can live our life, right? So I don't like to live my life my way. I'll part with all kinds of money. I'll pay that tax. We can part with friends so long as we can live our life our way. I mean, the, the truth is that we could suffer the loss of all kinds of things so long as our life is spared. It's going to cost how much for, for my life to be saved, doctor? I'll pay that. No problem. It's the most precious thing that we have. I mean, we even remind people of this from the very earliest of age, do we not? Am I telling the truth? What's a little kid say when someone tells them what to do? You're not the boss of me, right? You're not the boss of me. I'm going to remind you of that. Or even when we get older, we just get better at saying stuff like that when we get older. But we still talk that way, don't we? Someone tells us something that we don't want to hear. Someone tells us to do something we don't want to do. What do we say? Hey, this is my life, and I'll do whatever I want to do with my life. Or we say this way. You do you, I'll do me. Cool? That's the same thing as saying you're not the boss of me. It's just kind of prettier. What are we saying when we talk that way, guys? What, are, what is behind that? What are we actually saying? We're asserting control over our life because we think that we know how to care for it better than anyone else. And so that is our plan of salvation. It is a plan of self-salvation. I'll take care of me because nobody values my life as much as I do. After all, it's my life. Does this make sense? You can kind of think of it this way. Think of it like a, um, like a local car dealership and how they lease new cars. So when someone signs that lease, they get to drive the car for a while, right? But they don't own the car. They're leasing the car. The dealership owns the car. They basically just rent it out to people for a limited time, two to four years. And after the contract is up, after the lease is up, the dealership keeps possession of the car. Guys, that's kind of what we do with our life. And this is what the world tells us. We do the, you should do this with your life. This is normal. It's common. Like a dealership, we may lease our life out for a limited time with terms and conditions. Right? We may lease our life out to other people, even to God but we won't give up ownership at the end of the day. It's my life, and I keep the title. I keep possession of it, and that's how I preserve my life. And so many of us, if we're being honest, friends, so many of us are leasing our life to the Lord.
we give God an hour on Sunday, you know, with terms and conditions, so long as it doesn't conflict with something else I've, I've got going on. We may serve even the other people in our church for a little while, so long as it's not too much. They're not asking me to do too much, and I'm not accountable for when I don't show up. I'll do that. I can, I can sign off on that. Uh, we may even listen to a sermon. We may even read a little bit of the Bible during the week. Um, but we're not going to let that change what we're most passionate about. Leasing means that at the end of the day, we are not going to surrender the control of our life to the Lord. Uh, we'll let him drive it for a little bit, but we own it. We keep the title. We keep possession of it. And so let me say this. Here's what I think is actually underneath that behavior, because we need to get to the heart, right? I think there's something underneath that, and it's this. I think that we don't believe that anyone else, including God, values our life as much as we do. So how could they possibly preserve and take care of our life like we could? And that's rational. But I think that's what's really kind of underneath that. I think actually there's some fear that is operating under that. And here's the fear. I'm afraid if I surrender my life to God, God will ruin it. Like, I'm afraid that if I give up possession to God, he'll mismanage it. I will miss out on all the fun stuff if I give my life away to him. I'm not afraid of that. I'm afraid I'll miss out on a great career opportunity. I'll miss out on the relationships that I really want. Uh, you know, I'm a, God might make me a missionary and send me to frozen Siberia, you know? And I'll be miserable every day. If I give my life to God, he might do that. And that scares me. So you know what? I'll just lease God the corners of my week. And most of my weekends, you know, after the big holidays, of course, you know, that's, that's reasonable. But my life is never going to revolve around God. It's just never going to revolve around God. I preserve my life by keeping tight possession of it. And I love you guys. I want to say this. The Bible is telling us something. The Bible says that that is a recipe for wasting your life. Okay? It's like saying, I know I'm in the middle of a famine, and I know what I need to do, but I'd rather die than give up my plan of self-salvation. You know, I know, what, I know what I need to do, but I'd rather die than give up the thing that I've bound my life up with, because I don't know how to live without that thing. You know, my kids aren't just important to me. My kids are my life. spouse isn't just important to me. My spouse is my life. My career, my hair, my figure, my summer vacation that I work all year for, buddy boy. My friend that I've known since elementary school. It's, like, it's my life. It is my life. And I'd rather keep possession of it 
and die in the end than to give it up and live because I just can't imagine living life without that. I can't even fathom what a life like that would be. Listen, God is telling us that the thing that we are unwilling to part with will be our undoing in the end. If we try to hold on to our life, whatever we've made our life, God is saying, look, if you're trying to hold on to your life, you will lose it. You lose it in the end. But there is another strategy for salvation, and it's this. We can save our life by giving possession to another. We can save our life by giving possession of it to another. Let's look at the text here, verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. Send him with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Then let me bear the blame forever. That's pledge language. That's oath language, right? That's covenantal language. He's making a covenant. People do this all the time in the Bible. Even when faced with the certainty of dying, Jacob is still extremely reluctant to give up possession of his son, who is his life, remember? And so it takes his other son, Judah, making this promise. And it's a two-part promise in order for Jacob to release control of his life. Are you tracking with me? It's the promise that persuades him to let go of his life. Here's the first part of this promise. He basically says, look, if you hand over your son who is your very life, we will live and not die. Good news. We will live. You don't have to die. I'm, prom I'm promising you we will live. That's the promise. There is a way. And there's only one way. Give me possession of your life. Put your entire life in my hands. Now remember, Jacob believes that the safest place for Benjamin is where? At home with him where he can see him and take care of him and protect him, right? So this requires him to have some uh, faith in his son Judah. And, and ultimately God too. If you look down in verse 14, he prays a blessing. May God bless you, right? So, so there the author is like combining like God and Judah a little bit here, okay? He's having faith in God. He's having faith in Judah as well. And so the question is, what makes this son Judah so trustworthy of something that is so very precious? Because he hasn't been that careful with the other possession, that prized possession, right? What all of a sudden makes Judah so trustworthy? How can, how can the father trust Judah? Well, that's the second part of this promise that he makes. And this is the part of the promise, and this is why it's a covenant. It's got teeth. It's got some teeth to it, right? He says this, I will be his pledge of safety. And if I don't return him to you, I will personally bear the blame. He's like, I, it's like he said, like, I will walk him up to you and put him in your hand. 
Like, I'm not just dropping them off. You will see him. And if you don't, I'll bear the blame forever. You put that on me, Dad. Put it right on me. He basically says this. I am promising you that nothing evil will happen to Benjamin, Dad, because I promise that evil will fall on me instead forever, if it does. If it's going to fall on anyone, it's going to fall on me, not him. I promise. This is how you know that you can trust me with your life. And that promise, that promise is what persuades Jacob to give up possession of Benjamin. It's a promise. Promises are powerful. Jacob has a son who is willing to risk what is most precious to him for what is most precious to Jacob. And it convinces him. Brothers and sisters, it's the same way for us. This is the good news. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. Good news. God has made promises to us. You and I who are in a life and death situation, God has made promises to us because he knows we've got a real hard time giving up our life. And he's so good, he's made promises. There is a way. There is a way, and there is only one way, that we live and we do not die. And here it is. We must hand over control of our entire life to the Lord. This is the way. This is the way. You know, go back to that Carl analogy. This is the way we live. We sign the title over. We sign the title over, and we live. We live when we sign over ownership of our life to the Lord. When we say by faith, you know what? It's not my life anymore. God, you own it. It is in your hands. So do whatever you want with it. It's your life. And guess what? You don't die when you do that. You don't die when you do that. You live. Now, I'm smart enough to know that this is really easy to say and real hard to do. I'm not a dummy, all right? In the end, what persuades us to do this? Because this is not a, I've got to tell you this, it's not a one and done. We do this every day, huh? Don't we do this every day? In the end, what persuades us to give up possession of the thing that is most precious to us is if we believe that that person is trustworthy. Amen? Like Jacob, we need a son who promises, makes us a wonderful promise, and backs it up. We need a son who's trustworthy. He's not just a promise maker. He's a promise keeper, right? And that's exactly what you and I have in Jesus, who, by the way, is a descendant of Judah. And this is what Jesus says, Mark 8, in calling the crowd to himself. So this is for non-Christians and Christians. This is for everybody. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. This is for you. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, here's his reasoning. Here's his reasoning. 
for whoever will save his life will lose it. That's a promise, right? Here's another promise. But whoever loses his life for my sake and this, the, the sake of the gospel will save it. Whoever loses his life to me because of the gospel will save their life. How do you and I know? You guys know I'm big on that question. That's great, but how do I know? How do you know? How do you know that Jesus will preserve our life if we give it away to him? How, how, how do we know that he won't ruin it? How do we know he won't mismanage it? The most prized possession that we have. Here's how. Here's why. Here's how you know. Because of the gospel. He says it. Because of the gospel. Jesus died on a real historical cross in your place, in my place. That's not fantasy. That happened in real history, right? At the cross, the destruction of our dysfunction that should have landed on us landed on Jesus. That's how you know, for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is our true and better older brother who has pledged his life in our place. He made an even better pledge than Judah did. The greatest evil that could have ever happened to us which is to be cut off from the land of the living and to be cut off into outer darkness forever. That happened to Jesus. And you know why? So it would never happen to you. So it never happened to you. On the cross, Jesus literally did what he said he would do. He did what he promised he would do. He bore the blame. And if I don't save their life... I'll bear the blame. He bore the blame to save our life. He did it. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me, guys? The gospel says that Jesus did not merely risk losing his life for us. That's what, that's what Judah said. He took a risk of losing his life. Jesus did better. The gospel says that Jesus gladly sacrificed. He intentionally sacrificed his life so that you and I could live forever with him. Jesus is someone that we can trust with our life. We have proof of it. We have evidence. Jesus is someone worthy to have possession of our entire life, days, nights, and weekends. For the next 85 years. And then forever. Jesus is someone to worthy to have that. Why? Because he has shown the links to which he will go to save your life, to preserve your life, to rescue your life. He did what nobody would do. Not even a brother would do. He's a better brother. He's the brother that you wish you always had. Jesus says, not my words, the Lord's words, whoever would save his life will lose it. But... Whoever loses his life to me and because of the gospel will save it. And dear brothers and sisters, please believe the gospel. Believe the gospel and stop leasing your life to the Lord. Sign the title. 
give Jesus full possession of your life. You will not die. You will live. You will live. You will live. Both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, the devil has us so confused sometimes. They don't want us to think that you've come to rob us of life and pleasure and joy. But you say a thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come to give life and that abundantly. Oh God, help us hear what you are saying. Help us believe that you're not a robber, you're a giver. Help us give our entire life. Show us where we're not and give us through the Holy Spirit the power to relinquish control over to you so that we will live. It's in your sacred name we pray, amen.